Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Miss Kate Gregory is back. She hasn't been on in a long time. Really looking forward to talking to her. Always. Yeah, always. Even though I'm not a C++ programmer, every time I talk to her, I, I think to myself, oh, I got to do it now. Now is the time. Now. This is the time that I'm going to... Have I? No. No. Because <laughs> you're busy. I'm really busy. I'm really busy. So uh, that's it. Just the last week before Keto Fest happens here, I'm getting really excited about it. Well, when this show comes out, it'll be the end of July, and Keto Fest will have been a massive hit. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. I'm yeah. sure it was. It was fine. Yeah. But you asked me to make sure that you were free for Keto Fest at prep time and so forth, so we've stacked up a few shows so that yep. you have your window. Yep. Anyway, let's roll some crazy music for a little thing we call Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? CPP.sh. What's the .sh stand for? Uh, Shazbot. <laughs> oh, really? We're going to channel a little Mork from work? A little Mork and Mindy there for you. This is a C++ shell. Oh. It's an online C++ compiler, kids. This is what all the cool kids do these days, isn't it? All the cool kids. All the cool languages. And I'm looking at four lines of code. I can't even tell you what they do. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of them looks like a seizure and the other one looks like a cartoon <laughs> curse. So, it could be Perl. It could be C++. Kate, do you know about this? Uh, I know a ton of online compilers. I, I haven't actually used cpp.sh. I'm a big Godbolt fan. Yeah, sure. Me too. Godbolt. Godbolt.org. The only person who calls it Compiler Explorer is Matt Godbolt. The rest of us all call it Godbolt, and, and it's a <laughs> verb. So if, uh, a big trend in C++ conferences is someone suddenly breaks out and starts running their code or compiling their code and showing the assembler right. live. At, that's their demo. And that's, that's what uh, Godbolt.org does that's cool, is that it actually shows you the assembler that you get from your code. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Everyone's always going on and on about performance, and it's wonderful to be able to show, for example, that the more readable code with optimizations on produces exactly the same assembler. I think I opened Pandora's nice. box here, Richard. <laughs> but a good one, right? Because like, we have to remind ourselves that once upon a time, C++ was the high-level language over assembler. Uh, yeah. And Godbolt does exactly that. Would you like to see what that looks like at x86 instruction set? Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's continue this discussion afterward. But anyway, that's what I have. I thought I would be current and hip and, uh, you know, if somebody out there likes it. You did it. I know someone hipper than you. <laughs> You're a cool kid, Carl. All right, cool. At least I can pretend to be one. <laughs> Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off a show 1398 from January 2017, one with one Ms. Gregory. Talking about C++ for a new generation. Yeah. Because, you know, oddly enough, we talk to her on a regular basis about C++. Got some great comments on the show. Admittedly, they're about a year old. This one is from Woshik Gomola. And Woshik, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, but you had a lot of vowels. And he says, I watched Adam Fermanek's lecture a couple of weeks ago, and he showed how to manually manage memory in .NET, which is certainly a conversation we had on that past show about pairing C++ and C Sharp. And per instance, he showed that the implementation of collection works as a collection described on the show in that it places objects that are contained one after another memory, and they should be placed together in a processor cache. 
But we all, Adam and the viewers, were surprised when the iteration is slightly slower than a regular list, but the creation of the collection is a bit faster, despite the fact that a copy operation takes place. Today, I think this behavior is caused by a type problem that's used in the benchmark. And I remember it was a collection of value objects and optimizations might be applied on both collections. Mm. Adam doesn't use these tricks in his project, but there are people that do. I have been in some of Chris Corden's talks where he describes how he optimized performance in critical areas of applications. And this is my favorite line of this whole thing. Performance can be squished from a .NET app, similar as it can <laughs> in CPP, but it makes the code ugly and unreadable. The CPP guys may be familiar with those tricks, but the dot one one nut folks, not so much. Mm. I like, you know, <laughs> squishing performance out of things. That makes me happy. Yes, squeezing every last drop. And, it, and it's a valid point. He says, you know, in critical parts. Yeah. You know, that's one of the number one things I see intermediate type developers do. They've done no measuring. They have no idea where their bottlenecks are. And they're writing things in an awkward and ugly way because they believe that to be faster. Yeah. Yeah. You know, first write it in the most readable way you can, then find out you have a performance problem, then add ugly to it as necessary to, <laughs> to tweak the performance out of it. A hundred percent. Yes. There's, I've never seen pretty performance code. There's just no such thing. Hmm. Except maybe that garbage collector. That garbage collector is kind of <laughs> That's magic. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, there's a point where it's just so profound that you're too stunned to even see the ugly. Maybe that's it. Right. So, Woshesh, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We squish the performance out of him. <laughs> well, yes, yes, we do. I got a special pair of boots that I use for that. <laughs> That's kind of what they sound like. Nice. <laughs> Stepping on your .NET code. <laughs> All right. Well, let's formally introduce Kate. We were looking at her bio, and there really isn't anything we can take out of it, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Kate Gregory has been using C++ since before Microsoft had a C++ compiler and has been paid to program since 1979. She loves C++ and believes that software should make our lives easier, and that includes making the lives of developers easier. She'll stay up late arguing about deterministic destruction or how C++ 11, 14, and 17 are not the C++ you remember. She has helped thousands of developers to be better at what they do. Kate is a Microsoft Regional Director, a Visual C++ MVP, an Imagine Cup judge and mentor, and an active contributor to Stack Overflow and other Stack Exchange sites. She develops courses for Pluralsight, primarily on C++ and Visual Studio, and since 2014, she has been a speaker and open content chair for CppCon, the largest C++ conference ever held. You're kind of qualified to talk about C++, <laughs> I think. It's my jam. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the very first show that I interviewed you, I don't even think Richard was the co-host yet. You said you like to wake up in the morning, grab a Coca-Cola for breakfast and get right to writing code. You said you were a device for converting caffeine into code. Yes. <laughs> I never forgot that. That that line has stuck with me. People come up to me at conferences and say, hey, are you still a device for converting caffeine into code? Yeah, <laughs> it's a multiply stolen line. I, I stole it from uh, Usenet Sig, and that person stole it from 
oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he was a mathematician who said that a mathematician is a device for converting caffeine into theorems. Cool. Is Coca-Cola <laughs> still your preferred caffeine beverage? I usually start the day with coffee, but I can only drink so many cups of coffee and then I switch to Coke, yeah. Neat. What is new in C++ land? Oh, my Lord. Uh, well, the biggest new thing is that every three years, there's a new version of the standard. So, you know, C++ <laughs> yeah. was born in like the 80s and we got a standard in 98, the first one, and then in 03, and then we're like, okay, well, I guess the language is done now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> that didn't work out so good. So then finally we got a new standard in 11, and then 14 and 17 and 20 is just kind of coming into view now, what's going to be in it, what's not, because it takes quite a while to actually, if you decide something's going to be in the standard, to really lock down that specification, because C++ is a language with multiple compiler vendors, and there's not many such languages out there. Right. So, you know, if if Microsoft wants to change something in C Sharp, they just change it, right? I mean, uh, they have a mechanism inside the company. Obviously, there's not one person running around just changing the language, but it's it's a single-body decision. And I don't know who owns Java this week, but whoever owns Java, you know, they can just change it, and so on. It's Larry, and Larry does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, with C++, the, the, first of all, the committee has to agree, and then, you know, multiple, uh, not only compiler vendors, but library implementers for the standard library need to go and act on the specification. That's what the standard is. Yeah. And so, it takes some time to get a specification that's written well enough that everyone can implement it, and it'll come out the same cross-platform and cross a huge variety of hardware. This reminds me of sort of the way HTML and JavaScript advances as well. And so then it's the Microsoft, Google, Apple, Mozilla foundations of the world that argue about features and then implement them in beta versions of their browsers and see how people pick them up and sort of use that as ammunition for the talking points in the committee. Mm. Absolutely. And there's a similar thing. So there's something going on called coroutines which is basically, if you think about a weight and a sink, it'll be like that. Right. And the person who's championing that is a Microsoft employee. And so there's an experimental implementation in the Microsoft tools huh. that you can try out. Other proposals are coming from people who work for other vendors. And so there's experimental implementations in their tools of different possible features. So mm -hmm. if, you want, if you want to live in the future and say, well, I'm using the C++ for five years from now, mm. you know, you're going to run multiple compilers all the time. Sure. Yeah. And they're not going to agree on a bunch of things. Correct. Are they often experimenting on the same ideas? Or are they all working on different ideas? Sometimes you'll get competing proposals. Right. So some, someone will say, we should solve this problem with this new language keyword. And someone else will say, no, no, I know a way to do it with a library. And so you'll have those in competition. And is that actually a preferred method? Language constructs versus libraries? I guess fewer language constructs are better. Mm. Correct. Every time you add a keyword, you're either going to add an extraordinarily ugly keyword with a bunch of underscores and whatnot to, to avoid collision with the real world, or right. you're going to potentially collide with the real world. Have there ever yeah. been breaking changes in a standard? Here's a trivial one. You know how you declare a local variable? Just about every language that's a brace brackety language, you say... I don't think this is going to be trivial, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> no, trust me. You go int i, right? Yeah. Right. There's a, a thing you could put in front of that in 1998. You could say auto int i. Oh. 
And that meant mm. that this I had automatic storage scope. But that was the default. So if you didn't say it, that's what you got. What is automatic storage scope? Uh, that when things hit a brace bracket, they go out of scope. It doesn't oh, okay. matter for integers, but this okay. is your deterministic destruction. So if this was an employee E, the next time we hit the close brace, it goes out of scope and its destructor would go off. I see. But nobody ever typed auto, but it was a right. reserved keyword. So this meant if you fast forward a decade or two mm. and you want this compiler to deduce the types of variables, what's var in C sharp. So you could say auto I equals three and I would be an integer. Okay. Or auto F equals 2.7 and F would be a double. Right. Well, we couldn't use var. Do you know how many, how many pieces of code out there are already using var for a variable? <laughs> like so many. Awesome. <laughs> but auto was this keyword that no one was using. Huh. So it's like, done. We'll do auto. So you say auto I equals some initializer, and then it deduces the type of I based on what your initializer is. In theory, this was a breaking change. Hmm. Because if someone ever wrote auto int I equals two, it would be like, what? You can't be auto and int. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but nobody ever actually did that. Or right. so you thought. Or so we thought. And it was a pretty easy fix. Like the error message actually says, you know, if you want automatic storage, just just take the auto out of the line and you'll be fine. Right. So they're also doing some things with context-sensitive keywords. So we have the final keyword, which you probably recognize. The same as sealed in some other languages that, you know, you can't inherit further from this thing. Yeah. But it's a context-sensitive keyword. So I can have int final equals two, and that's fine. Okay. It only has its special keyword meaning when you put it on a class or on a function. And the rest of the time, it's not a keyword in the sense that you can use it for a variable name or whatever else you might like to use it for. Yeah. Because you can imagine there was a lot of code that had variables in it called final. Sure. Right. Names are hard. They're still hard. I, arguably, yes. they're harder. When I first started programming, the basic was the language. And all the samples were A dollar sign, B dollar sign, oh. C dollar sign. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'll just keep that map in my brain as opposed to, you know, something that you can read. I did a lot of stuff in languages where the length of variable names was restricted. Like you could have six characters or you could have eight characters, but that mm. was all. Mm. And, and some people write today in modern languages like they're still using those. And you sort of, you read their, their code, and you're like, dude, vowels are free. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You can do that now. It's not a big deal. It's like L-S-T-N-M for last name. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's interesting. Certainly, it's been a talking point for us on the show for years now of this effect of old scars, you know, that you might call wisdom, but turn out are actually scars that are limiting your behavior. Definitely. Yes, yeah. people have crutches and superstitions and whatnot, and they're sometimes they're not true anymore in the tools you're using, but sometimes they were never true in these tools. They're left over from your days of working in Fortran or BASIC or PL1 or whatever you started in. Yeah, yeah. I always worry about you have a scar caused by a beta you played with once, <laughs> and, it, and it was never true again, and so you have this really bizarre scar. Yeah. Yes. Like my, my fundamental loathing of SQL triggers comes from a very honest place. Once upon a time, triggers were remarkably evil. 
I do remember, you know, being the contract DBA, having a new database guy come in. He's like, well, we could implement this with triggers. And I start to change color. <laughs> and I look at the CTO who's waiting, you know, for speech number 17. Uh, yeah. And I go, you know, why don't you take that out for a spin and see what happens and let's talk about it. Right. And were you setting him up to drive off a bridge or did you think it might work? I, you know what? I honestly didn't know. I, what I was aware of is my scar was 20 years old. Yeah. Mm. And I think it was Postgres and Postgres is magic. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also little ticks. You know, I, I worked with someone who would always save all before running in like C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Literally a Twitch. I have that. And because there was a version of a VB that wouldn't save when you built, right? So right. you would work all day and run and debug and get it perfect and then close it and then it would all be gone. Right. It would crash and die. <laughs> this person would save all and then build, save all and right. then build. And, and if you're pairing, it's irrational to object to that. What is it? Two seconds? Three seconds? Right. I still have that tick, Kate, and I even do it on web pages. That's there how, you, go. <laughs> you know, I'm reading a web page, I'm editing something instead of pressing like the save button. I always do like a control S just out of habit. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not. And then you hit the build, which means it immediately <laughs> saves it. So you save <laughs> yep. and then you save. I know. But you know what? Those, those days of wasted work. They left such a mark. <laughs> yes, they did. Yeah, this is this is scar tissue, and it's it's just always a question of: is it making you better? Is it making you worse? Is it just quirky? Maybe it's just right. quirky. Maybe it's just quirky. Right. But you know, this is a very real thing for me. I've been talking a lot about, for example, the C plus plus core guidelines that say do this thing instead of that thing. This one's better, and I will have people rebut me with a story from 2003. Well, things have changed in 15 years. <laughs> yeah, know? oddly yeah. enough. Hey, uh, hold that thought for just a second. I want you to continue that story after we take a minute for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .NET Rocks to get a discount. And we're back. It's Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, and Kate Gregory. We're talking C++ on .NET Rocks. And you were just mentioning that when things change. Yeah, so the library implementation of the standard library, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, may have had some defects or flaws in it that have been corrected. And people just sort of memorized that certain things were bad. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, well... You know, that entire library is bad because this one function as implemented by this one vendor that I don't use today had this flaw that only happened in this edge case. Right. Old pain. <laughs> Seriously? You're going you're gonna to throw the whole thing out for that? Yeah. And they, they straight-facedly, they say, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. not yeah. using that. Yeah, it's, it's old pain, right? And I do think in, in the engineering discipline that is software, you are always triaging what you need to learn next. What's a, an important piece of the puzzle? Because there's too much. You can't learn yes. it all. 
And so, you, you know, no different than culling through resumes. Like, you almost find excuses for the early cull. Simple things, just like, okay, those things can go. I'm not going to look at that. And so, right. Right. It's some, you know, it's, then you confront someone who's actually been successful with that particular capability, and you've discarded it out of hand for what would logically be a minor infraction. And we get a lot of positive reinforcement for this, too. Like, if you don't learn the new JavaScript framework this week, when the next one comes out and all the cool kids switch to it, you get such a dose of, like, dopamine, like, ha-ha, <laughs> I never learned the old one, ha-ha, you know? And so, it, it encourages you to keep doing that. I think it's a, it's a scary habit to get into because suddenly you're only using your old tools and everyone else is 11 versions past you. Yeah. I look at what's happening with Windows and recognizing that deep down Windows has always been a C++ product. And wonder if we're not about to have a moment like that, because there's sort of reorganization of where everybody is for Windows and UWP. It seems to me that regular .NET developers are going to get a bunch of new tools in the near future for being better at Windows. I do not know what the story is for Windows. You can find 100 people who will tell you that it's irrelevant, that all right. operating systems are irrelevant, but Windows more than anybody else. And that all that matters is the browser and the web and the cloud and they seem to forget that the cloud is running something, yeah. right? <laughs> but you can also find plenty of people who just like, you know, quietly have their heads down and are just running their multi-million dollar businesses using an operating system and writing code that targets that operating system specifically, <laughs> because that's always going to be the most efficient and performant thing to do. Mm. I, I have clients who are like, yeah, we don't have a Mac version. We don't have a Linux version. That's okay. You know, our software costs a lot of money and it makes a lot of money and people can afford to buy a copy of Windows to run it. Not a big deal. Yeah. They have the upside to the sort of irrelevance of OSs is they're all cheaper now. Yeah. I have to wonder if they aren't all going to be free at some point. That's not today, at least. People want everything to be free. And I wonder how they want to get paid. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, don't get me started on that. As a musician, it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> I also think we're on the swing back now. When I when you look at the successful open source projects and so forth, one of the things that people are really assessing is how are the principal contributors staying alive? It's actually yeah. an important part of the equation. And you know, successful libraries often have paid programmers working on them. Right. And if you do some other revenue source like service contracts or mentoring or training or, you know, we'll fix your bug on a priority way if you pay us to fix your bug. Maybe that works out as a business model. But it mm -hmm. seems like people say, well, that library's free and charges for support. That library charges, but their support is free. And then they go to the first one and they're like, hey, those guys have free support. Why don't you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Until all the revenue is gone. <laughs> yeah. I do think that there's now a sense of, I need these people to stay in business. So let me understand your revenue model well enough that I can go, okay, that's sustainable. I'm keen to have sustainable partners, essentially. Maybe I'm just being optimistic here. It just feels like we're turning a corner. The rabid, all things must be free mindset seems to be mellowing a bit. I think for businesses, I think businesses are saying, you know, it's really more important to me that you're here next year. And right. some small number of dollars, if that helps, I'll totally kick it in. But humans seem to have this, like there's a new vocabulary. For, you know, so my courses on Pluralsight require a subscription, and right. occasionally I'll have links to them, and people will reply and they'll say, that's behind a paywall. 
Well, I usually hear that described to like a newspaper or something else that should be free, right? but has, has been meanly and unfairly hidden behind. And so, you know, courses were never born as free things. Courses have always cost money. Sure. But now they're, they're free. They always take a lot of work and they're worth money. Exactly. But because there are free ones, people are like, hey, how come your course is behind a paywall? That's like, because that way I can put the time in to write it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also think that's no longer an offensive thing to say either, right? It's like you're sort of at a place where it's like, I deserve to eat. Do you not think I deserve to eat? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And and do you not want to watch a course that I worked on 40 hours a week for however many weeks it took instead of a course that I worked on for two or three hours a night after dinner? Or instead of some person going, Okay, so uh, what are we doing? Uh, okay, I'm going to spend 10 minutes talking about how awesome my video is, and uh, maybe we'll get to the content in a few hours or something. And <laughs> I, I've seen that guy. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the relation to this whole cost thing is, is it expensive to code in C++? Is this like not the first programming language you should choose for your typical run-of-the-mill forms over data app? Yeah, you have to choose the right tool for what you're doing. So there mm-hmm. are all kinds of frameworks for common kinds of applications. And your sort of CRUD app is well supported with things that will like generate most of it for you. Excellent. Yeah. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's good. Do that. Yeah. The other thing that I've been doing a lot of because we still don't have a good UI story is taking monolithic C++ applications and splitting them apart into an engine that stays in C++ and a front end that could be in anything. So if it's a Windows app, it's some sort of Windows technology, WPF or UWP or something. Right. But maybe it's a web front end. Maybe the whole thing is running in the cloud and it's like your, I don't know, Razor pages. Like it doesn't need to be a connection, right? They don't have to be at all the same. Mm. That lets people keep the valuable stuff because the number of folks I meet who literally do not understand their own crown jewel. Right. Somebody wrote something and it's amazing and he's gone. Right. Inevitably, they're gone. (laughs) Long gone. Of course. Yeah, I got a call from someone where he died and the rest of them are trying to keep the company going. Ah. And you know, more, I want to help you people. I want you to be able to keep your company going. But they had always just trusted him on the magic part. Right. Yep. But at least they knew it was magic. I'm pretty sure, you know, you and I collaborated on a project that shall remain nameless where we pretty much <laughs> came to the conclusion they had no idea what their actual value proposition was. Yes. Yeah. People don't always know what they have. That's for sure. Yeah. And if they have it and they know, okay, this, you know, million lines of C++, this is where the good stuff is, but they want to change it in any way, they don't have the skill set. And here's where things were getting expensive until maybe five years ago. You couldn't buy, beg, borrow, or rent a C++ programmer under 50. Yeah. Right. And that's not the cheap end of the labor market. Right. No. Well, that's a person with more work than they could possibly do. And they're only, yes. you know, they, they really don't have to put up with much. They can kind of just, they, they pick and choose what they want to do where they want to do it. It sounds like you've been listening in on my partner meetings, <laughs> but yes, that's exactly right. 
Well, th- this was the topic in the last show we did was that there is a new generation of C++ programmers starting to grow up. There really is. I would say I've really seen a difference in the last five years or so. I think part of it is the growth in the conferences. You know, CppCon launched in 2014, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there are literally so many C++ conferences now. Mm. I can't speak at them all. Wow. Like, <laughs> I'm going to Norway in August. I'm going to Seattle in September. I'm going to Australia in October. I, I had to say no thank you to going to Germany in November because it's just, it's just too much. I wonder if that's more of a, a symptom of there being more C++ programmers, not a reason for there to be more. I think it goes in both ways. Yeah. So if there's conferences, and especially there's conference videos, because everybody puts their videos online now, right? you can bring people up to speed. Mm. You can take that person who's been working in C Sharp for the last 10 years, but who took a couple C++ courses back in the day. Right. And say, watch these five talks about like asynchronous something or another in C++ that you know nothing about. And now you can join the team that's going to try to add asynchronicity into our C++ engine. And it's a relatively inexpensive way to get some expertise. Not from nowhere, but I think it can work. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time for me to read some of the declarations in my very first C++ program. You ready? (laughs) Ready. Auto accident. (laughs) Register voters. Static electricity. Nice. Struct by lightning. That's by underscore lightning. Of course. Uh This is a good one. Void star where underscore prohibited. (laughs) Char broiled. Short circuit, short changed, long johns, unsigned long letter, double trouble, (laughs) float valve, short pants, (laughs) void check, unsigned check, and my favorite, struck dumb by bracket size of member. Uh, (laughs) That's not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Could have been worse. I could have done const ipated. (laughs) <laughs> case closed double or underscore nothing short-sighted <laughs> yes you could have okay i won't though i won't i, I refuse to do those those that would be silly no the, you know i have to i have to object to the const one no because no we have a thing now east const and west const <laughs> <laughs> i'm east constipated yeah, so instead of saying const int i equals zero, I like to say int const i equals zero. I have to put the const after the type. It's a thing. We okay. have bracelets. I'm just telling you, it's a All thing. Right. Well, it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots is available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, 
WinForms, WPF, and Xamarin products, as well as Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features like calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the toolsets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational-ui. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Matthew Ryder. Actually, it's Matthew. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for you, sir. And Matthew just won a $200 Amazon gift card. Compliments of Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win, and all right, Ms. G, it's been a while. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Batteries. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a new garage to keep them in. That's a lot of double A's right there. <laughs> Specifically, a house battery. Oh, okay. Oh. You know, we just recently got a generator. We had a power failure here that went on more than 24 hours. It was in the early spring, and we got mm. fed up, and we drove to town and bought a generator. And it was funny because the outage map showed that where we live and north, there was like 40,000 people without power and it was going to be another day. Yeah. But south of us, nothing much had happened. The storms had missed them. Wow. You should just move your house south a little bit yeah. and you'd be okay. <laughs> Here I am in the Canadian Tire in this small town and I'm buying a generator and I got lots of company and I can hear the staff talking to each other. Why is everybody coming in for generators today? Like there was a big run on generators. Uh. there. <laughs> Hey, Sparky, come here. What do you think these generators for? <laughs> yeah, what's, what's going on? What's what's happening? Do these people know something about the zombie invasion or something? So incredible. Nope, nothing preventative here. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we we got it turned on and and we're able to restore the important things: the fridge, the freezer, the internet connection, and mm. the television. So then we were good to go. And that's worked a couple. We've had more power failures since, and it's good to know that it's there and it's useful. But we're starting to think like, you know, a little bit of a bigger budget, one of those trickle-fill batteries. The hmm. Tesla Powerwall. Yeah. Yeah. I put my Jenny in when we did the first renovations of the house in 2003. I still have that generator. It is now an artifact. <laughs> they're they're wow. supposed to have a 10-year lifespan, right? So here I am at like 15 years. I have it serviced annually by the same company, and one of the old guys will always bring one of the new guys now to come and see it. <laughs> to lay hands on the relic. <laughs> and the thing is, it's in great condition. It's got lots of runtime on it, like it's been busy, but you know, sort of the magic of routine service, that it's actually got good oil in it and so forth. We're both on the same mind. It's like, let's run it till it fails, because it's just a, it's this bizarre artifact now. I can get a better generator for less money. I yeah. can get a bigger one for about the same money. But I'm thinking about, I'll change it up for a couple of Tesla Powerwalls. We've never had a run more than like 36 hours. Yeah. And, but we have regular outages, you know, three, four times a year for more than an hour. Yeah. And they get old. 
The first couple yeah. times, you know, especially if you have small children in the house, it's like, woohoo, we're camping. We're going to make soup outside with the camping stove. Yay. Hey. <laughs> but uh, it's like, damn it, I was going to watch the soccer game. You know, so. <laughs> so I got a story for you. Richard, you remember that dinner that we had in Australia in Gold Coast where we had the, the vacuum pump coffee siphon? Right coffee maker. It was a percolator that was in three stages. It had a little flame on the bottom, right? A little butane flame. And then you hung the water in a pot, you know, the pot with water in it. And then it had this siphoned pipe going down the top in a percolator uh, where you put the coffee up top. It was fascinating. And I, I got so enamored of this thing that I bought one for everyone for Christmas that year. And they were like 80 bucks, right? I mean, I put out a lot of money to, to get everybody <laughs> one of these. And so we had one at the house and I ordered a case of butane, a case of, you know, little butane cans. And my wife, Kelly, goes, what on earth were you thinking getting all that butane? That's the stupidest move you've ever made, Franklin, right? Then the power went off. <laughs> and there's no coffee yeah. except for this thing and she goes oh my god you're a genius got, we can have coffee now well yeah she's really something without her coffee too i've had that experience <laughs> yeah when we were at disney i got her a, a cup that says grumpy on it and it holds like six cups of coffee <laughs> yeah so that's her but anyway she uh we got a generator after that and there you go. Turned out that you know we had to use it for almost a week once. Wow, mm. yeah. that's a long run. Yeah, it was one of those hurricanes, Sandy or Irene. Yeah. I think it was Irene. Anyway, there you go. Getting back to C plus plus. I remember C plus <laughs> plus. All right, I, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you sure. to once again make the pitch for C plus plus to C sharp programmers. Why on earth should they spend the time to learn? C++. Well, the first question would be, depending on the platform you want to target. So, there are eight-year-olds who are learning C++ because that's the only language that runs on their jewelry. Ah, jewel bots. True. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, that's a pretty powerful motivator. Yep. Also, if you want to work on any kind of space robot, they all run C++. Ah. So, that's part of it. There's certain jobs, certain platforms, especially embedded things, hardware-related right. things, where it's really the only option. Then there's a huge chunk of people doing low latency. And right. they're at the exact opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of parental pride if you have this job. On the one end, we have game developers who are insane about frame rates, but whose parents are probably, eh, wish they had a different job. And then on the other end, we got the fintech, the financial technology people, the traders, who right. care about how long it takes the bits to come around the wire and pay extra for offices that are closer to the wire because the, the delay of the extra mile of, of pipe is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Boy, did they care about performance like you would not believe. Yeah. Sure. Once you're counting milliseconds, you're in a strange world. Yeah, yeah. They're like It's even crazier than frame rate, which is crazy for milliseconds. They can get down to micros and there's a whole new working group within the C++ standards committee for these high performance, low latency folk to talk about what's really important to them in terms of squishing all the performance they can. <laughs> nice. 
out of what they're doing. So that's a huge population. If I'm a C-sharp developer, I could probably use one of those libraries that lets me run it on a GPU. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of GPU stuff happening. Uh, that's part of what that group is working on. There's, uh, again, uh, maybe competing implementations. But uh, GPGPU is the future, man. I've been turned on to that for some time. And the other thing is the absolutely enormous farms care about power consumption more right. than performance. When you say farms, you mean data centers? Yeah. You know, server farms, shipping containers full of servers. Right. I went to a talk by someone who at that time was working at Facebook who said, if you could get a less than 1% performance improvement out of a piece of software, you would cover your year's salary with the electricity that you saved from doing that. That's wild. Like, never mind any people's experience of using the product, just the power bill. The latency thing is a really big deal in audio, obviously. Mm-hmm. And in tools like we're using right now, like we're using Skype and we're using you know, Zoom and all those things. And those wouldn't have the latency if we were using a managed language. Right. You're just putting more layers in between. Right. And they all, it's like middlemen all taking a piece of the profit. They're all yeah. taking a piece of the execution time. We have a piece of hardware in the studio called a Mark of the Unicorn or Mo2 24IO. It's 24 inputs, 24 outputs. And I got two of them because that's how I roll. So Anyway, they, if you didn't have a piece of software that let it do internal routing, you know, so you could hear yourself talk, for example, right. you know, you have a microphone going into an input, now you want to hear it. Well, that all happens with internal routing. It's not anything you can do in software. You have to use their built-in UI to control it because it's all happening within the device itself. It's not like... It comes out to Windows, and then you can mess around with it. Oh, that's fine. I actually have written software to do routing in audio, but the overhead means that you hear your voice a few milliseconds after you actually speak it, and it is so unnerving. Oh, I still remember from the Ontario Science Center, I could not have been more than 12, and they had a phone headset that just delayed your words. And you become unable to speak. You can't speak, right. Yeah, you just can't. You stutter to a stop. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. It's really a strange thing. So yeah, anything where you need immediate feedback has to be the lowest latency possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that slot has been occupied by C++ like for, I don't know, quarter of a century or something, and it's just not going anywhere. And C before that, and Assembler before that. Yeah, C before that, right. So it's a huge improvement. I wonder if some of the AI tech, you know, when, where they're starting to do massive consumption of FPGAs and things like that, that optimizing it to moderate usage, especially when you think about the cloud, like the Microsoft is offering tools in this space that they would absolutely want to optimize every iota of compute for that. Right, because they're paying that power bill. Right. Yeah. I mean, you sort of have a conflict of interest because if you're charging people by the CPU cycle, wasting CPU cycles is actually profitable for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you're, if you're doing it by the call, then fewest number of cycles is in your best interest. Yes. It's all about incentives. But that speaks to me then that all leading-edge technologies where performance is a factor have a play for C++, essentially. I think that's legit. When I look at what people are doing who who speak at the conferences, where they work, you know, they work for 
for big financial companies. They work for big software vendors, you know, Adobe, or not even vendors. Like Facebook doesn't sell their software, but my goodness, they write a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, big companies that have issues of scale, cloud-oriented companies, anyone who is in the game or finance industry, and then all the hardware-embedded robot-y type people. And then sprinkled among them, like, like raisins in a cake or something, you have people who are just still using the stuff they wrote 20 years ago. It's not yeah, broken. Yeah. They're keeping it up to date. It's not legacy code. It's up to the minute. But it started in C++. Are they moving into the new compilers? Like they are actually staying current? Absolutely. I have I've tons of people who are doing that, where they're, they're going back to old code and modernizing it. But they have the tools, they know how to work the tools, they have the skill sets, and they usually have found a pipeline somehow of where to get developers from. Now, they are they doing that because, is it because they want the new language features or are the new compilers better in some way? Typically, the bribe for the new compiler is, hey, we'll make your code faster. Mm. Right. Same code, it's going to run faster. So Microsoft, for example, put auto vectorization into their C++ compiler some releases ago. Right. So if you're doing something with 100 integers, it's like, hey, what if we did those in 128 or, or 256 wide units? They're not really words. And we could basically do four passes of the loop at a time or eight passes of the loop at a time or whatever, and we'll be way faster. Well, you don't want to write that with the intrinsics and stuff. I, I did it once. It's horrible. The compiler will just do it. Right. Yeah. So now your code's faster. You didn't do anything. Or there's going to be a version of the standard library that lets you say, oh, and by the way, could you do this thing, which is inherently loopy? Could you do that parallel? All the elements in the, in the loop are independent of each other. Right. And it'll just parallelize it across whatever you have, whether that's CPUs or whatever, to do the parallelization. But your code has literally changed like you added comma PAR, <laughs> just, about, just about like that, at the end of a function call. I know that should be funny to me, but I don't know why. <laughs> is that a new keyword yeah so it's what's called an execution policy so you can say i'd like uh. this to be done in parallel now and then if the target of your compilation supports it then the right things come out of the compiler i kind of think also c compilers live close enough to hardware and to hardware instruction sets that when new CPU architectures come out, new microcode instructions and CPUs come out, when new memory architectures come out, they're the ones who can really first manifest those benefits. Right. I mean, that's the deal with the vectorization, right? That's something that the right. CPU can do. But there are also things that are just different now than back in the day. So CPU caching. Right. In the 70s, I'm not sure there even was any, but if there was, it wasn't big no. and it wasn't important, right? Mm -mm. Yeah. But now those caches are big enough that, well, as the letter that you read out was saying, you know, if all the elements of a collection are next to each other in memory, the prefetch that brings things into the cache, it'll be able to keep up, there'll be a pipeline, and what you want will always be waiting in the cache for you. And in fact, for the CPU speeds that we've got today, you need that prefetch to actually keep the processor running its pipeline at full bore, otherwise it's waiting for memory. Exactly. Exactly. And so if your collection was more like a linked list where you had to follow in directions and they were scattered all over memory, they could never be prefetched because you wouldn't know where to fetch it from until you'd read right. the address. And the minute you've read the address, you need the memory. And now you have to yeah. wait on it. And so those sorts of things, they didn't matter 
when there weren't significant caches on CPUs. But now it's like, well, if you use this approach, and I won't say language because, you know, in theory, you could write your own memory manager for .NET so that you could keep all your elements side by each in memory and, and get that mm -hmm. capability. If you can get that capability, there's a benefit attached to it now that didn't used to exist. Who would do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it also speaks to the fact that deep down, we're still using the x86 instruction set from the 1980s, really the 1970s. Man, Moore's Law, because we kept making CPUs faster, there just wasn't an incentive to redo the core instruction sets. They ad kept adding to them, but we really fundamentally kept doing the same thing over and over again. Well, there are people who are trying different things. Right. You mentioned FPGAs. That's a totally yep. different way of looking at the universe. GPUs. And there's also the whole world of quantum. Yeah. Oh, don't get him started. <laughs> we'll be here forever. It's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to think about what the role of C++ will play when quantum computing comes along. Because Microsoft has got Q sharp. Yes. I wanted to bring it back to the whole instruction set thing. I mean, .NET is, you know, the x86, .NET is so cross-platform now, but we forget that one of the biggest benefits of the C language in its day was its cross-platform ability, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's only because we started doing platform-specific performance tuning and all those kinds of things that it became synonymous with, you know, being linked to a particular instruction set. What's the story with cross-platform C++ these days? Standard C++, if you just write stuff from the standard, is by definition cross-platform. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's the deal. That's what the standard is about. So you, you get the right compiler and you compile that code and you run it on your Mac. You get the right compiler, you compile the exact same code, you run it on a Unix machine, you run it on Windows machine, whatever. So it's really no accident that they called it .NET standard. <laughs> Probably not. All right. Yeah, to evoke that. Now, yeah. the, the problem is, if you're not writing a console app or a service that just like reads from one file and writes to another, there's going to be some platform-specific code in your application. If you want to read sure. and write files, if you want to light up pixels on the screen, if you want to go get something over the internet, you know, that all involves talking to the operating system. So... That's where some sort of a framework or a library typically comes into play to help you to do that. And we don't have anything standard other than console output and console input for doing that. There's a networking progress in flight. It's called a TS, a technical specification, which is when you're like basically considering adding it and people start to implement it. And there's a file system TS, but they're not done yet. There was a proposal for a graphics addition to the standard to do a 2D graphics library. Doesn't mm. look like that's going to happen, which I, I personally think is a bit of a shame. So... Why wouldn't you just use OpenGL? OpenGL is not what you'd call beginner-friendly. No. Right. But then graphics never are. <laughs> yeah. Well, the idea, the idea behind the 2D graphics library was that you would write something that could be used in a consistent, industry-wide academia, high school, whatever, because it comes with a language, you could count on it, and you could get people drawing squares and circles and filling them in, and maybe there would never be a business use for any of that capability, but it would let you teach the concepts and know it's there. And a lot of other people are like, eh, 
here's a library that 80% of us use. And it turns out, you know, 80 really means 30 because people are like that. Like everybody uses this and it's like a third. Yeah. So there's various libraries you could use, but they're not in the standards. You can't necessarily count on them. Most universities I know, you know, they'll pretty much let you write your own course. But when you start saying, oh, and we're just going to go get this library that I happen to like, and I'm going to devote, you know, one fifth of the course to teaching them how to use this non-standard library, that doesn't generally get approved. They balk. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's funny to hear a C++ person talk about UX problems because, and I'm trying to compare the two because, of course... There's a million ways to build a JavaScript page and, and an HTML page, and there's lots of arguments about the right way to do that. XAML yeah. is like the ultimate non-standard standard. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, there's no one right way to do anything in it. Pretty much all we've got is wrong ways. Yeah. Yeah. The mobile development, like all of oh. these UX choices are hard. They are, and they're really, really not portable. Like, I don't just mean you can't take the code. But, you know, you wrap your brain around one set of nomenclatures about canvases or frames or whatnot, and then you go to a different platform, and they don't use any of those words. Or worse, they use those words for different things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. You know, you compare Xamarin's forms to WPF, they literally have different words for the same thing and same words for different things. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> So there's, it makes a good place for those of us who can sit on the border. So if you have a C++ app and you'd like to add a WPF control into it, there's not a lot of people you can phone and ask for help with that. No, that, yeah. that sounds like money in your pocket. <laughs> yep. And you know what? It makes the apps amazing. Oh, wow. The numbers are all in there. So you just grab a control library, and, and I happen to be partial to the Telerik library. I'm not saying there aren't others. Mm -hmm. And you do a little wrapping, and poof, you know, they have a gas gauge in their 20-year-old app where they have uh, live graphs that they can hover over and get the pop-ups and, and play around with. And they just throw money at you as fast as they can, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can make good-looking visuals over top of a C++ program. Yeah, you are a wizard. That's right. Yeah. But it's as long as my clients aren't listening, I'll tell you, it's actually not that hard. <gasps> Shh. What are you doing? <laughs> That's crazy talk. <laughs> Giving away your secrets. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. What's next for you? What are you doing? Are you doing any speaking on C++? You coming to Dev Intersection? I am not. I, I'm doing a lot of keynotes. I found out that I, I really like being opinionated, and I do have some wisdom piled up. And you get a lot more people to an opinionated talk than to a level 500 super tech difficult talk. Right. So it started with my stop teaching C when you're teaching C++. Mm, nice. Which has had a wonderful impact. People are actually listening and teaching C++ differently now. That makes me very happy. That reminds me of one of my talks. Stop teaching Flash when you're teaching Web. <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> i sense a series i think we could we could go with this yeah <laughs> but then when i got caught up in the guidelines the c++ core guidelines are amazing but they're enormous like they're literally longer than the standard mm. and i came to realize it's not possible to write simple rules for how to write simple code 
because languages are complicated and the thing you're trying to model is complicated. So uh, let's say you're trying to teach someone to drive. Here's a simple question. How fast should I drive? Yeah, well, it depends. Right. You know, like if you say, oh, you should drive the speed limit. Now you just ran into the back of someone who's slower than you, right? Oh, well, okay. Unless there's someone in front of you. Now a dog runs out. Oh, yeah, you have to break when it, like, <laughs> there's no, the answer to how fast should I drive is like 10 pages long and we haven't done what lane should I be in yet. So there's no right. chance of having a C++ cop uh, yeah. plug in to look <laughs> at your code and say, no, that's not right. Can't do that. Well, so there are several checkers. Uh, Visual Studio has one and... Clang also, uh, Clang is the other big compilers, right. Visual Studio, Clang, and GCC. And Clang has Clang Tidy, and they, they, they check against these hundreds of rules from the guidelines, because right. some of them are quite simple and mechanical. Because just because it compiles doesn't mean it's going to do what you think it's going to do. Well, exactly. <laughs> or even, even if it does it, it's still... So one of the things I talk about a lot is is your legacy, because I work in legacy code, and I'm like, if I could have talked to some of these people 20 years ago, mm. yeah, the compiler the, the compiler will cheerfully compile a 10,000 line function, right? All in one line. <laughs> <laughs> and it might even work, but my goodness, that's a horrible thing to try to deal with later, or yeah, with yeah. multiple overloads you know, taking slight variations on a theme in terms of the parameters. We have default parameters in C++. Maybe that would be more expressive to just have one function, but say, you know, the last parameter defaults to false mm. rather than have one version with the parameter and one without it. And so the guidelines are often aimed at that, how to make things more maintainable as time goes by. Yeah. So it mm. works, it passes all the tests, but it's still crummy. I want to uncrummy it. Summer reading. You could read the guidelines or just hire Kate. <laughs> Pretty much. Kate, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It always is, and wish you the best. Thanks. See you guys soon. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.